Welcome to the podcast of River City Community Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.rivercitychicago.com. You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart. And I love the spirit in this room right now. I hear some of you still singing that song. I'm uh, thankful for that, thankful for the way that I've just am enjoying lately us worshiping together. It probably sounds funny as a pastor say, but I'm just enjoying the way that we're coming before God together and learning together, getting to know each other's stories, pushing each other, um, seeking to live on mission together. So I'm just really, really thankful for you all. So thank you to the worship team. Um, it just really led us into a sweet place to become aware of, sensitive to the presence of God. So amen. Well, if you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. And uh, if you're one of those who don't always know where to turn when we open to a book, this is going to be one of the easier ones because in New Year, we're going to do a new series, and we are going to dive into the book of Genesis, the very first page of the Bible. And uh, uh, it's a lot of familiar stories in Genesis. We certainly refer to them often just because it's such a significant source of theological reflection, theological trajectory for the rest of the Bible. We've never actually done a series on it. We will not attempt to do the entire book. That will probably take a couple of years. We'll um, come back to other sections. But the way the book of Genesis is organized, there's some pretty significant divisions where it kind of takes a turn. And so um, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are really the origin accounts. We're going to entitle the series Origins. And uh, the first 11 chapters are really describing from a biblical perspective how it is that God brought the world into being, how God related to the creation, to the world, to humankind. And so we're going to really do a deep dive into these first 11 chapters of Genesis, and we'll move slowly at first. The first three chapters in particular are very thick and rich as they, as we see the creation of the world. We see the Garden of Eden. We see Adam and Eve, their children, um, uh, Cain, and, Cain and Abel, and we'll kind of make our way through that, and then we'll get to the terrifying section on Noah and the ark. It's things that that, just, that part has scared me since I was a kid, so I've managed to avoid preaching on that up till now, but um, it's a good thing about just going straight through. We'll just kind of look at all of this, and then it ends that first 11 chapters ends with the Tower of Babel, and that, be, that becomes the conclusion to the kind of first part of Genesis. And so uh, we're going to dive right in. We're going to go into Genesis chapter 1 today and uh, look at both the beauty and some of the confusion that comes with the chapter. So if there's ever time you're going to be able to find your Bibles, where we're at, it's today. We're in Genesis chapter 1. We have it on the screen as well. So let's all rise together. This is not one that really breaks up easily, so we're just going to read the entire chapter. It's going to take a minute, but I think it's worth reading the whole thing. Genesis chapter 1 is a song or a poem. You can kind of feel it with the way that it is melodic and has kind of a beat to it. Uh, uh, It's describing the creation of the world, but in a poetic and song form. So we're going to read the whole thing. Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called the night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault and the water above it. And it was so. 
God called the vault sky. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and trees in the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kinds. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plants bearing seed according to their kinds and trees, bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the vaults of the sky to separate the day from the night, and let them serve as signs to mark seasons and days and years, and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth, to govern the day and night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living and moving thing with which the water teems according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures. You still with me? What verse are we on? 25 or 24. Let's pick up a 24. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock creatures that move along the ground and wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds of the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move on the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. God saw all that he made, and it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in their vast array. I don't know if I put that last part on the, so that's where it ends with, uh, thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. Amen. This is the word of God. You may be seated. All right, Genesis chapter one, we're going to try to take a kind of bigger picture view of it in this first week as we uh, explored. Uh, Genesis chapter one is a creative chapter about a creative God. And when you look at it through that lens, it is an amazing, beautiful chapter that speaks to the creativity, to the power, to the majesty of God. There's so much that comes from it when we look at it as this creative count of a creative God. 
Um, historically, though, I would suggest that there are not many have come to this text and tried to, I would say, make it say things that are not there, that ask questions of it that are valid questions, but whose answers are not in this passage. And that's some of where I think the beauty of this passage has gone awry over the years and where it creates really some confusion, even conflict for folks is trying to sort through this. So I just want to, I want to go after two of the big ones today. I want to ask the question, what does it say and what does it not say about two different big things? For one, what does it say? What does it not say about creation itself? And then what is it saying? What does it not say about the sinfulness of humankind? All right, two seemingly very different things, but really they're, they're both pretty significant. So I um, want to do a pass on each one of these. What does it say? What does it not say about creation itself? What does it say? What does it not say about the sinfulness of humankind? Because that's really the, the crescendo of this chapter is God creating humankind. So sound good? You ready for this? All right. Let's start out with the idea of creation itself. Um, one, I'm was thinking as I was preparing for this, you know, I've got two children, as you probably know, they're now seven and four, and um, creation, trying to understand how God created the world, that, those are questions that surface pretty early with children, and so with both of our kids, Xander's in first grade now, Gabby's in preschool, but when, both of them for preschool, we sent them to a Christian preschool, and so um, one of the first couple of weeks, and when he was three years old and in preschool, uh, we were driving home uh, from school, and I would always try to ask him, what'd you learn today, and I don't know, he's, he's real introverted. He's hard to pull stuff out of. He rarely answered that question. But on this day, he was pretty excited. He said, we talked about the book of Genesis today, which seemed pretty you know, impressive that a three-year-old guy, I would say, yeah. he, goes, he goes, you're not going to believe this, Dad. Guess what? I said, what? He said, did you know that God and Jesus created the whole world? I thought, crap, did I not tell you that part? I, I should, we probably should have like solidified that. So I tried to go along with it, you know, without being too defensive. Like, oh no, tell me more. He's like, God and Jesus were both there. And of course, I lost my cool for a minute. I'm like, well, the Spirit of God was technically there too. Verse two, Spirit over the water. They're not fully accurate theologically if we're going to quibble about this, but uh, um, I tried to get back on it and just embrace the fact that he was learning something very important that God had created the world. Uh, th- these ideas, these notions begin very early on of us interacting with what the Bible says, that God is the creator of this world. And it brought back a lot of memories for myself. I'm a pastor's kid. I grew up in church, heard Genesis account, and it's there various forms throughout the years. And I remember that being not only an easy idea to embrace, but one that was comforting. Like, yes, that makes sense. God has created the world. God is the source of creativity behind all that I see. That was, that was something that was not difficult to come to grips with. Where it started to get tricky as I got older, and this is it's not all Christians who are doing this, but a big part of the Christian tradition has, has not only embraced that truth that God is the creator of all, but has grabbed onto some certain pieces and made them almost hallmarks of fidelity to Scripture. There's certain ways of viewing this passage that instead of becoming an opinion or perspective, it become almost a sign that you truly care about the authority of Scripture, about the integrity of Scripture. And so these are where it started becoming problematic as I was trying to make sense of the book of Genesis. One of them, I mean, these are all going to be familiar to you. One of them, there would be those who are very strong in their opinion that it's seven literal days that are described here in the book of Genesis. All right, so this became one of the first hallmarks I learned that if you really are serious about the fidelity of Scripture, you need to see this creation account as something that happened over seven literal days. And then, if that wasn't confusing enough, then the age of the earth became a really significant one. And so, um, I know the fancy term now, I didn't know it then, the fancy term would be young, young earth, 
Now, I guess I don't know the fancy term. They're called young earth something. Um, it's the perspective that um, earth is 10,000 years old. And uh, young earth creationists, I think is what they're called. Anyway, this is really not un- import- the important part. Um, the, the idea, though, that it, it's actually not even from Genesis 1, but based on the Genesis 1 account taken with some math from different prophecies, there are those who would make a strong claim that the earth is 10,000 years old. And then the boogeyman of all boogeyman was anything that had to do with science in the Bible. Um, whenever the kind of question came up, when, when those were trying to merge or integrate, understand how different scientific views um, had anything to do with the book of Genesis, that was, um, there was not room for that at all, at least in the tradition that I grew up in. It was seen as, um, as scientists in general were seen as the boogeyman, that they were trying to prove that God wasn't, they were trying to prove atheism through discounting the account of Genesis. And so I grew up more and more, and this is just my story, I'm not saying it's all of ours, but I grew up becoming increasingly um, confused about the Genesis account. At the most basic level that God had created the earth, that was something that seemed to be easy to accept. The idea that to be a Christian meant that you had to see the seven literal days. In fact, I can remember, I can remember these kind of different flashpoints with each story. I remember... Uh, I remember <laughs> I think every kid goes through a dinosaur phase, right? I'm, I'm not sure. But I remember reading a dinosaur book, and, um, and in, in one of the chapters it said, you know, the brontosaurus whatever lived, you know, 10 million years ago in this. And the, and the person who made, um, who was a, you know, strong Christian believed in this was like, what, we're not going to be reading propaganda like this. That, that's a, that, that's a, a direct confrontation to the scripture. We're going to close this book. And it's like, what, wait, what, what? You know, and remembering like, wow, that, those, the Antichrist got a hold of the dinosaur books, man. The Antichrist was big in our tradition. You know, it's like, ah. Um, or I remember in high school having this debate with somebody um, in, in having grown up in the tradition I grew up in, I took, the, I, I've always taken seriously the authority of scripture, still do. I mean, I base my whole life on the authority of scripture. I would hold all Christ followers to put themselves under that. Um, but the, the idea of holding to the fidelity of these certain kind of marks, I remember um, a debate I was having with somebody in high school. And there's a certain irony to it because I was already in the process of losing my faith, but I was still very strongly arguing on the stuff I had learned. So I was in this huge debate with him about the literal seven days of the Genesis account. And I convinced, I was convinced that he was not a Christian if he didn't believe in the literal seven days of this. And so we're arguing, arguing, arguing. And he opens up and he goes, have you ever noticed, though, that the days don't even get introduced until day four of God's creation? And I'm like looking in there, wait, no, no, that can't be right, you know. And I'm opening it up, and it is. It's this is how it's. This is how it says it. We just we just read this a second ago, um, in verse uh, fourteen. God said, "Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from night. Let them serve as signs to mark season and days and years." And he like really screwed me up with this one. He pointed that, and he's like. If there are literal days, you know, the way we measure days is based off of the sun and the moon, right? So if it's literal days, it probably couldn't have literally started becoming days until halfway through, right? It's like, no, God is God. God could have done it however God wanted to. If you're a good Christian, you will believe that this happened in literal days, and we, we came back to it. Um, he, here's, here's where I want to kind of get to with this one. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking those kinds of questions. I don't think there's anything wrong with being inquisitive about those. Um, but the number one rule, and this was so freeing for me once I finally got to this, when you go to Bible school, when you go to anywhere, when you go to seminary, the number one rule of coming to Scripture with interpretation is to not read your own agenda into the Scriptures. It's to instead ask what was being said, to whom, in what time, what questions is the writer trying to answer, and start with there. And this, I would suggest, is one of the really important things to come to grips with with Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is a song. 
It's a poem. It is not intending. There's nobody who would suggest that what we don't even know for sure who wrote it. The suspicion is it was probably Moses who wrote it, probably Moses that wrote most of the Pentateuch, the first five books, but there's there's debates about how much of it he wrote or if it was him kind of sharing some of his understanding from Revelation God and then others wrote it. We don't even know that for sure, honestly. But whenever it was written, it was not written to be a science textbook that answered how God brought every one of these into the world. It is a song, it is a poem, it is a declaration of praise that points to the reality that God is creator God, that God has brought this creation into being, and at the capstone of it, that God has created humankind in God's image. And so here's what was at least really freeing and very healing for me is to, to, uh, to say it as simply as possible. I, I read this in a number of different commentaries. Genesis 1 answers the question, that, not how. Will you say, just say those two words with me. That, well, I guess it's three. That, not how. That if there was really one point I want to get to on this first pass, Genesis 1 is a declaration of that, not how. Here's what I mean by that. Genesis 1, the writer is saying that God created the earth. Genesis 1 is saying that God is the creative source behind everything in the created world. Genesis 1 is saying that God created humankind in God's image. There is no question, there is a declaration of God as creator God in Genesis 1 in that there is an emphatic declaration that this is what's true, that God did this. What Genesis 1 does not try to do in even the smallest ways answer the questions how God did that. Now, those are interesting questions. They're important questions. I think it's fine to ask those questions. But when we form perspectives on how God did it and then turn that into biblical truth that becomes fidelity, that shows, you know, I'm serious about my Christian faith and therefore I'm arguing for these things, I would suggest we are going way, way, way past the original intent of what Genesis 1 is trying to do. We are taking it beyond what it was ever intending to do. In, In particular, I think... The integration of science and faith is one that I feel strongly. I won't even attempt to get into how I've kind of come to reconcile some of the different scientific theories around how different things have developed and how that integrates in, other than to say I think it's, I don't believe there's any incompatibility between science and faith. What troubles me more deeply than that is sometimes it just feels like there's an insecurity or fear that drives a lot of Christians where if somebody seeks truth by reading a science book or seeks truth by trying to understand things and then seeks truth by reading the Bible, that somehow they're almost like going to discover something that like screws them up. And I think in the attempt to prevent somebody from losing their faith, we actually oftentimes make people lose their faith because they're not allowed to trust that all truth that is God's truth is what will be found when you seek truth. One of the really strong themes throughout the Bible is God says, when you seek me with all of your heart, you will find me. One of the strong themes of the teaching of Jesus, he says, I am truth. All of what truth is, is embodied and found in me, which I really believe means whenever you're sincerely seeking truth, you will end up finding Jesus. I believe that with all my heart. I believe when you are sincerely seeking truth, the answer will always be found in Jesus. And I actually think we've messed people up by creating kind of this dividing line right up front saying that if you entertain scientific perspectives or interact with scientific theories, somehow you're, somehow you're questioning your faith, sometimes, somehow you're, 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 you're putting your commitment to Christ you know, up in a vulnerable place. I just disagree with that. I think that, that we can trust the that of Genesis 1. I think we can absolutely trust that God created the world. I think we can absolutely trust that God is the creative source behind the world. I think we can trust that God created humankind in God's image and that there's nothing accidental about the human spirit, about the human soul. Nothing accidental. Absolutely, 
authoritatively, we should say that God created the world. When we get into the how, I think we should go ahead and have some good discussions about that, and I'll entertain different theories. I'm not trying to belittle anybody in the, in the theories that they've come up with, but it's one of the things I think needs to be corrected in about how Genesis 1 gets talked about in the larger discourse, is we've taken some of these theories, some of these perspectives, and we made them the gospel itself. We've made them a mark that you truly believe in Scripture, and it goes way beyond. I, mean, I just, I, I don't know. This is probably one of those like dumb thoughts, like when you're doing sermon prep. But I kind of almost had this idea. Like, let's assume Moses wrote it. I, I almost had this, had this kind of funny image, like one of those little cartoon things pops in your mind, where somebody back in two thousand years ago, whenever it was written, went up to Moses and said, "So, where exactly do you fall on the carbon dating question?" And Moses be like. What? What are you even talking about, right? Like, I'm, we're, we're singing a song. We are declaring the praises of the God who's created everything in the created order. I, I'm not trying to answer the carbon dating question. And yet, if you go to some circles, that would actually be the defining mark about whether or not you're a true Christian, right? So, again, I'm not trying to belittle somebody who's got perspectives on those things. The, 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 the main point of this first pass is that the that, not how, is a big part of how the Genesis 1 creation song is put together. And so I think we can rest confidently on the that, that God created the world, that God created all of this in, in God's image, that human beings in particular are created in the likeness of God. That, I believe, is something we should bank our faith on. How questions? Let's have good late-night philosophical debates, all that, but let's not draw lines in the sand saying, if you're asking questions or you're trying to understand how science and faith work together or any of these things, that somehow that compromises the, the biblical witness. I actually think it's the opposite. I think any sincere pursuit of truth will always take, her in deeper, take us deeper into the heart of Jesus. So, that's the first one. That's the more heady of the two, but I think because this, there's such a history around this, it's important that we kind of discuss it a little bit. So did, did that, I didn't necessarily feel I was very articulate during that. Did that kind of make sense at least, at least halfway make sense? Yeah, okay, thanks. I guess you had no choice but to kind of give me a, get, throw me a bone there, but th- thank you for that. All right, that, that's, the, that's the pass I wanted to do on creation, all right? What, the, what, what, what Genesis 1 says about creation, what it does not say about it. I would say that's a good way to summarize it. There's an emphatic declaration of that, that God created the world, that God is the source behind all of the creativity that humankind has created in God's image. Let's, uh, let's, let's turn a corner now. The other really major theme, so th- it's, I, would, I would say it's arguably the, the two major themes of Genesis 1 is God, creator God and creating the entire created universe. Theme 2, and this is where it really becomes the substantial part for the rest of the Garden of Eden story. Theme 2 of Genesis 1 is the importance of humankind. Right, theme two of Gen- this second theme of Genesis one is how significant humankind is. It ends with this beautiful doctrine that we often refer to here in Latin. It was called the Imago Dei, that human beings are created in the image of God, created in the likeness of God. This becomes the other major part of the biblical story. And there's another aspect of Genesis one that feels so significant to get away to 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 build on, and um, and let, let, let me start like this. So sin, as we will see throughout the, the early book of Genesis, sin becomes a major theme of the Garden of Eden, right? Um, we get this consistent picture that um, there's something wrong in us. There's something that goes against the nature of God inside of us, that God creates paradise for us and we remain unhappy, that God invites us to rest in his presence and yet we still stray away, that God invites us to flourish and thrive in God's goodness and yet we somehow find a way to self-destruct, that God portrays the goodness of who God is, and we still somehow call into question that, right? Sin will become a major theme in the book of Genesis and in the Garden of Eden account. I don't want to minimize that at all. What I'm saying next, I don't want to be confused by that. Sin is um, a major theme of it. But when it gets to how we understand the human condition, when it gets how we 
gets to how we understand our relationship with God, I think that there's a dangerous imbalance that really easily slips in that is totally contrary to how the book itself starts. And I hear this all the time. I grew up around this. I hear it in circles all the time. And I, I really understand where it comes from. I'm not trying to wag my finger at anybody or say I'm the enlightened one, but it kind of goes like this. Let me just, in a very personal way, say what I've so often heard growing up in church. When it comes to the idea of sin, what I so often heard is something like this. Because of the original sin that's in us, because of the sinful tendencies that's in the human heart, we are wayward people who have, um, who have disqualified ourselves from being in the presence of God. Uh, more than that, what I often hear is that um, because we are sinful at a fundamental level, we're unworthy to be in the presence of God. That when God, and it still, it touched me at an emotional level, even when I think of trying to process through these messages, that when God looks at me apart from Jesus, all he sees is a sinner who's unworthy of being in the presence of God. And it's only through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ kind of overlay that I can be seen as lovable and acceptable, right? And I think these are attempts to show the gravity of sin, the gravity of sin of which I would very much get on board with and believe is true. But we already, as we'll see in the, in the in early accounts, we already have a predisposition towards shame. We already have a voice inside of us that says, I don't belong, that I'm unworthy to be in God's presence. That's already inside of us. And so when you overlay that with a theology that says, apart from Jesus Christ, you are unworthy, you are unlovable, you're, I am a fundamental disappointment to God without Jesus Christ, that shapes the way that you understand sin. It shapes the way that you understand yourself. It shapes the way that you understand your relationship with God, right? Which is where I would believe, where I would suggest Genesis 1 is so important for this conversation. Because if you look through Genesis 1 and try to find where sin is in there, you won't find it at all. If you look in Genesis 1 and try to verify that claim that we're somehow a disappointment to God or that without some kind of immediate provision, we're not worthy of being in God's presence, you will not find anything like that in Genesis chapter 1. What you will find in Genesis 1, in verse 31, is a critical verse for understanding this. Jason, if you don't mind bringing this up. Right after God creates humankind, here's what God says in verse 31. God saw all that he had made, and it was good. A simple, straightforward statement, but one with huge theological importance. God looked at everything that God just made, with human beings being the capstone, the climax, that which God had just made. God looked at everything that God made, and it was good. If we are going to start with the origins account, if we're going to start with where this story begins, what God was doing, who we are when we started, it must start here, not with sin. God looked at that which God made, and God said, it is good. To say it another way, before there was original sin, there was something more original. It was the goodness of humankind. God did not look at us. God did not look at you and say, wow, what a disappointment. What, that's something that needs to be redeemed. That's something I'm going to have to come fix. I'm, that was not me at my best. I'm going to have to start a new plan right away to correct that which I had screwed up. God looked at humankind created in God's image and said, it is good. You are good. And here's why I think that's so significant, because, again, we'll see sin is just a major, major theme. We just see that there is something in us that takes that which is good and screws it up. 
We take that which God meant for well and we hurt people with it, right? There is unquestionably something in us that self-destructs when we're in contact with this goodness of God. That is absolutely true. But we're, uh, what we're trying to get back to is so critically important. It doesn't start bad, it starts good. It doesn't start broken, it starts whole. It doesn't start as a disappointment, it starts as a joy and delight. And it, it shapes the entire way we understand the work of the Spirit of God in our lives. The Spirit of God is not addressing something that's fundamentally broken. The Spirit of God is addressing something that's fundamentally good. God is, the Spirit of God is continually drawing us back to the original account, to the shalom, to the wholeness, to the vitality that we experience in the created order. And so there's lots of biblical warnings about the dangers of sin. There's lots of biblical warnings about when that's unchecked, what happens. But we're, again, we're not, we're not starting from a position of a deficit or a position of brokenness. This is the opening account. God looks and says, I just made humankind in my image, and it is good, period. I'm not disappointed. I'm not distressed. I'm not ashamed. I'm delighting. In fact, eight times in this, in this chapter, he says something is good. The whole spirit of chapter one is a God who's delighting in that which God has made. And that has been so healing for me in my own journey to say, God doesn't look at me and feel disappointed until the image of Jesus Christ is over on top of me. God looks at me and sees what God originally made, which was a human being created in God's image. God celebrates who I am. God is fighting for what I originally am. Now, I'd be the first to show all the ways I've screwed it up, right? Sin mars the picture. It screws it up. It smudges the picture. There's this one of these in one of the devotions I read. It said, it's almost like we are an original painting and through mistakes that we make and mistakes others make to us. They're smudged, it's smeared, it's even screwed up in certain places, but the original's always there. And the Spirit of God is always drawing that original back out to its full glory. And I think that changes the way we understand who we are in the image of God, that God looks at us and in the original state, God delights over God's beloved. And God is ferociously trying to pull us back to that delighted place. And as we get deeper into the story, we see that's why sin is so dangerous, because it takes us away from that original place. But we must never lose sight of that original place. God looks at you and looks at me and says, you're good. You are good. And that is where the creation account opens up. Amen? I want to I create just a little bit of space to reflect on that before we respond in worship. And so... Um, covered a lot, going all the way from creation to the, the, the human beings made in the image of God. But I want us just to get, let's, let's go ahead and close our eyes together. And I just, I just want to invite you into, into a space of reflection. So let's just do all eyes closed, all, all heads bowed. And one of the reasons, so this is a guided meditation here I'm doing. So just be prayerful, just open your hearts, open your minds, just listen. One of the reasons that I think that this material in Genesis is meant to touch in such a deep place is it tells us who we are. We get the same word genetics that we do from the book Genesis. This is, this is our story that God is telling us about. This is our beginnings. This is who God was before the sun and the moon and the stars and the created beings and the vegetation and plants. This is who we were. And God created you. God created us in that story and said, you are good. You are a reflection of who I am, the very image the very likeness of who I am is expressed in you. And so I just want to invite you, um, most of us, I think, can get to that place, that shameful place even, where we're aware of all the ways we're not what we're supposed to be. 
we can become aware of the mistakes we've made, the harm that's been done to us, the broken dreams. And those are all part of the story. Those are part of what God is working with. But I invite us to just the simplest of ways to come back to the created order where this all began, the Genesis 1 account of a God who spoke into being the created world, a God who spoke into being the seas and the oceans, a God who put a sun in the sky to govern light and a moon in the sky to govern night, a God who created living creatures on the ground and living creatures in the sea, and a God whose climactic moment was to take a part of God's self and image it, reflect it in humankind. I invite us to consider the way that this theme comes up throughout Scripture when in Jeremiah 1 says, before you were even born, I knew who you were and I set you apart. How in Psalm 139, David reflects that before I ever had a physical being in my mother's womb, you intimately knew me that as God spoke the created order into being, you already lived in God's heart and mind. There's nothing accidental. There's nothing mistaken that no matter what has happened between when you breathed your first breath and when you breathed your last, nothing about that was accidental or a mistake. You are a reflection of the very breath of God. The living God created living human beings to image and reflect and point back to God. You are good. God does not look at you and feel disappointment. God does not look at you and say you are unworthy. God looks at you as part of God's creation. God looks at you as a son or a daughter who is intended and designed to be in this place of goodness, of wholeness, of vitality. If we can trust that this is who God is and what God's intents and purposes are, this isn't us reading something in. This is a God who says, you are good. You are mine. So, dear Father, we do our best to come with our extremely limited viewpoints into this amazing story where you declare who you are, where you tell the story of our spiritual genetics, where you tell the story of what home looked like before we fell away and what it is you're calling us back to. And I pray there's just something about deep reaching out to deep. This is deep stuff in Genesis 1, and there's deep stuff inside of each one of us, and there's something that human words can't quite get to, but the Spirit of God can touch that place. In the same way that your Spirit hovered over the chaos of the unformed earth, so your Spirit hovers over the chaos of each of our lives. I pray that your Spirit will move and clarify for us who we are in you, who it is that you're trying to restore, what it looks like when we're home to listen to the delight of a God who says you're good. To remember that there's nothing our heart longs for more or needs more badly than to just sit and abide in that word of goodness. As we worship is in response, God, I pray that your spirit will affirm that which is of your original design, will affirm the work of a God who's come to call back and reclaim that which is his own. May we become motivated by that. May we long for that. May we seek your presence, seek your goodness, we pray. 
And now hear our words, hear our cries as we sing back to you in worship. Amen. Shout your praise Our hearts will cry